Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 336th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today by HEMA. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the president of the founder of Erica Reamer, MD, and good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck. Hello, everyone. Our lead story this morning is part two of a story that we first reported last month, and it's when we asked the question, are HIM coding professionals qualified to query for clinical validation? I remember, and my opinion is, it isn't about the credentials, but about the knowledge and experience of the clinical validator. And reporting our lead story this morning is author and consultant Amy Fang Yen. Also on the broadcast is nationally recognized coding authority Terry Fletcher. She'll be reporting on how to balance efficiency and compliance under the 2019 physician fee schedule. That's right. You know, and some background on that is that the revisions in the proposed rule for the quality payment program will further impact the 2019 physician fee schedule more so than in 2018. And Talk 10 Tuesday legislative analyst Rhonda Taller will report on more of the latest regulations coming out of Washington. Indeed, it's that time of the year. And later in the broadcast, you're going to review the results of the Tucked In Tuesday listeners' survey from last week. Yes. Last Tuesday, we asked listeners if their organizations have CDI on the weekends. I think the results are interesting. <laughs> okay, interesting. Well, we look forward to that. This is Tuesday. It's August the 14th, and we're listening to the 236th edition of Tucked In Tuesday. Stand by. Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by AHIMA, the American Health Information Management Association. Have you heard? It's happening again. The 2019 ICD-10 code updates are here. AHIMA has more than 20 coding experts working to review all code updates in their entirety. They are creating webinar training to ensure you and your staff are prepared for success. In-depth, on-demand training webinars are available for ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-PCS, and specialties including inpatient physical rehab, long-term care, physicians, clinical documentation improvement, and auditors. Purchase as an individual or for your entire organization at ahema.org slash code updates. Thank you, Clark Anthony. As we mentioned earlier, revisions in the quality payment program proposed rule will impact physicians more in 2019 than they do in 2018. And physicians participating in the merit-based incentive program, the MIPS, can expect more competition and even greater monetary penalties. The CMS continues to link performance to patient outcomes and then tie these measures back to clinical bonuses. For details on this underreported proposal, this nationally recognized coding authority, Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. Welcome to the broadcast. Thank you. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. With the CMS EM proposed changes that Medicare dropped on us all in July, it has been, in my opinion, left medical practices overlooking the revisions to the Medicare's biggest value-based payment program and a major catalyst towards transforming the healthcare industry from fee-for-service to pay-for-value. In the quality payment program proposed rule, impacts to the 2019 fee schedule, more so than in 2018, will make for heightened competition and expectations among physicians participating in the MIP system, which is the Merit-Based Incentive Payment Program. As CMS continues to link performance to patient outcomes and looking towards 2019, 
Physicians need to make sure they are informed and implementing measures on the performance standards to receive their bonuses, but also perfecting their ICD-10, CPT, and HICS-PICS coding, and are also mindful of the penalties they can incur with noncompliance, which outweigh any argument that it's not worth the time it takes to be proactive on your reporting. MIPS annually scores eligible Medicare Part B clinicians on a 100-point performance scale, which combines and expands upon the Meaningful Use Physician Quality Reporting System, which is PQRS, and value-based modifier programs. Mm-hmm. Medicare adjustments to the clinician's Part B payments are based upon performance scores and applied to the Medicare payment for every Part B item and service billed by the clinician two years after the performance year. So, for example, 2019 is the payment adjustment year for 2017 performance year. A significant portion of the incentive pool is derived from penalties applied to poor performers, effectively making the MIPS program uh, where the winners earn rewards and expense, at the expense of the losers of the system. And I hate to put it that way, but that is really what it looks like when you read through the program and understand how it works. In 2018, more than a half a million clinicians' 2017 MIPS scores will be publicly published by CMS, further expanding the program's influence on the industry. Year-over-year, MIPS increases the level of competition among provider organizations and raises the financial and reputational impact to clinicians. So for this reason, I like to liken MIPS to a treadmill, which speeds speeds up over time, motivating motivating organizations and clinicians to keep or exceed the pace of the competition. But what really is the wake-up call here is the reputational impact to the provider. Consumers will be able to clearly see their clinicians rated against national peers on a scale of 0 to 100, even more of a wake-up call is the fact that the 2018 QPP final rule states that a five-star rating scale will be applied to every MIPS performer, uh, performance measure for purposes of peer comparisons. The financial and reputational impacts stemming from the MIPS score are irrevocably attached to the physician, even if, even if the clinician changes organizations. So follow me here. If a clinician earns a MIPS score of two, for 2018 and moves to another organization in 2019, the new organization will inherit the MIPS payment adjustment applied to 2020 based on the 2018 score earned by the clinician at the previous organization. So this fact can impact how organizations may credential and contract with clinicians and may impact an organization's ability to attract the best and brightest physicians Mm -hmm. and clinical providers if a group's scores are not uh, competitive. In addition, every historical MIPS score earned by a clinician is a permanent part of the publicly reported record released and maintained by CMS, effectively making MIPS scores an increasingly significant portion of the clinician's resume. So although MIPS financial adjustments can change annually based on clinician performance, damage to a clinician's online public reputation may take years to reverse. And conversely, highly public Highly um, public reported scores can become a persistent strategic advantage over competitors. So for clinicians and groups committed to succeeding on the MIPS path, there must be leadership and organization-wide commitment to continuous performance improvement. This uh, program not only is about bonuses that you are earning when reporting and participating correctly, but monetary penalties you could incur if you do not. And your reputation as a provider to the public can be at risk as never before. So more details on who is eligible, who isn't under MIPS, along with bonus projections, please refer to my article in this week's uh, ICD-10 Monitor uh, that dropped today. Dr. Reamer, back to you. Thank you, Terry. That was excellent information on the MIPS. That was nationally recognized coding authority, Terry Fletcher. Terry is a member of the ICD-10 Monitor Editorial Board. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, very much. And Terry, thanks for a great story. You can read 
Perry's excellent reporting on this very important issue. In today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitoring News, and by the way, I understand it's generating an awful lot of page views. Thanks again. And a program note, be sure to register to attend a very important webcast on how to respond to the changes CMS is proposing to the EM services. This webcast comes your way on Thursday, August 23rd, and it features Shannon Deconda. You can learn how you can make an informed comment back to CMS prior to the deadline of September the 11th. Now it's time for Dateline Washington, featuring Talk 10 Tuesday legislative analyst Rhonda Tully. Good morning, Rhonda. Hey, a lot of news coming out of Washington. Yes, good morning, Chuck. Well, the House of Representatives is out of session till early September, but the Senate is back after a short recess. They do need to agree to fund the Department of Health and Human Services, which I believe they will be working on the authorization this week. There were some hearings in July on the House side, one on MACRA, MIPS, in the House Energy and Commerce uh, Subcommittee for Health on July 26, and another one on modernizing the Stark Law to ensure successful transition from volume to value in Medicare on July 17th. Um, If anyone is really interested, they can go to the committee site and read the transcripts um, and see the testimony. Um, The House also voted to permanently repeal the medical device tax in the Affordable Care Act. We'll see if the Senate takes this up with 60 votes needed. Maybe it could be attached to a tax or a spending bill. Meanwhile, there's lots of regulatory activity going on with proposed rules in the comment period and other rules finalized recently. For example, the inpatient prospective payment fiscal 2019 final rule was finalized recently, and those changes occurred 10-1, with a number of changes to quality measures being taken out of certain programs due to duplication or the burden of collection costing more than the benefit, or even some measures being topped out. I believe they removed 18 measures um, overall from the four quality and value-based programs, inpatient quality reporting, value-based purchasing, the hospital-acquired condition reduction, and the readmission reduction program, and they got rid of, or they call it deduplicated, 25 measures in those programs. There's also some changes in that rule regarding electronic health records. They are calling this a balanced approach to quality measurement. A rule was also recently finalized on the short-term insurance plans, making them available up to 36 months, which are exempt from some ACA protections, including pre-existing conditions, the ability to charge more for health status or gender, in some cases, even excluding essential health benefits. There are some states like Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, and I believe Rhode Island that have have said no to that rule, and uh, others are considering it. Recently, the Urban Institute did a study that said the short-term rule and repealing the individual mandate together could result in an 18% premium hike in the affordable care uh, marketplace in 2019 in the 42 states in D.C. where short-term plans are allowed. There was also a recent lawsuit filed in uh, the U.S. District Court in Maryland uh, by four cities, Baltimore, Chicago, Cincinnati, and Columbus, suing the administration over some of the regs that are dismantling the ACA. So three rules are now out for comment. The physician fee schedule, which includes a section governing MACRA or QPP, and as you know, that includes MIPS and advanced APMs. Um, Those comments are due in early September. The hospital outpatient uh, prospective payment rule, which includes some changes to the E&M coding, which I know you were talking about earlier in the program, I believe that rule, the comments are due September 24th. And then last week, the ACO rule went on display 
in the Federal Register with comments due October 16th. It's called Pathways to Success. The overwhelming majority of Medicare Shared Savings Program ACOs today out of a total of 561 are not taking downside risk. This rule could really change the landscape of the MSSP ACO program since it accelerates them taking on downside risk with two tracks announced, basic and enhanced. It also enables those ACOs at different points in time, depending on the level of risk they take on, to qualify as an advanced APM under the quality payment program. There are five goals being advanced in that proposed rule, accountability, competition, engagement, integrity, and quality. And information on all the rules, fact sheets, and press releases can be found in the newsroom on the CMS website, which is www. .cms.hhs.gov. And I'll close with another announcement the administration made that has changes to the Medicare Advantage plans and a recent announcement um, in early August. For the first time, those plans will be able to negotiate like private health insurance plans that provide uh, Medicare be benefits to 20 million Medicare beneficiaries, which is a third of all overall Medicare beneficiaries that are in the MA plans. Um, that is a big change, but there's also that's also been signaled by the administration that they want to bring drug prices down. Um, they are calling this uh, putting American patients first, and um, there's a lot in there, too. And again, more details on that can be found at the CMS uh, newsroom site, again, www.cms.hhs.gov. And I'll stop there and take it back to you, Erica. Thank you, Rhonda. Actually, uh, I would like people to know that I wrote what I thought about the uh, E&M uh, proposed rule, and I strongly suggest that people make their comments as well. And uh, next week, I'm hoping to write something regarding the uh, Medicare Advantage plan, uh, PPO plans. That was Talk 10 Tuesday legislative analyst Rhonda Taller. Rhonda is a member of the HIMSS Professional Development Committee. Chuck? Thank you, uh, Erica. And Rhonda, thanks very much. And we look forward to learning more about what's going on in Washington, D.C. And uh, just a program note, we continue our celebration of Ipspalooza. That's a summer school to learn more about the IPPS. It's a final rule now. So uh, coming up in August the 23rd is going to be part three of our three-part coding workshop series. This one on the MSDRG changes is coming your way Thursday, August the 23rd at icd10monitor.com at 1.30 p.m. This morning, our lead story is part two of a story we first reported last month, and that's when we asked the question, are HIM coding professionals qualified to query for clinical validation? And reporting our lead story this morning is author and consultant Annie Fengwein. Good morning, Annie. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Chuck. Thank you for having me. So are HIM coding professionals qualified to query for clinical validation? As Dr. Reamer mentioned at the beginning of this broadcast, it's really not the credentials, but the knowledge of the clinical validator. I mean, clinical validation is a multi-tier process, and a piece of it is already being performed by many CDI professionals from all different backgrounds. Um, CDI professionals already review documentation for any gaps or discrepancies requiring a clarification. Um, since CDI is not part of the clinical team, um, but plays a significant role um, since we are the liaisons between the clinical and coding world, it's really important for the CDI team to consist of a multidisciplinary team, um, both clinical backgrounds and coding backgrounds. It just makes the team stronger, in my opinion. 
Um, and there are many different levels of training and backgrounds for HIM coding professionals. So the misconception of HIM coding professionals unable to perform CDI validation um, queries or any CDI roles is um, inaccurate. Um, just like clinicians, there are many levels and types of training. Um, the fundamentals of CDI is actually acquired, and it's really important to have analytical skills um, while performing as a CDI professional. Um, so while incorporating previous experiences, um, as we mentioned before, it's not the credentials that make the person who performs the clinical validation. It's really just the experience that's acquired um, and in the art of reviewing medical records for clarification. Back to Erica. Thanks, Annie. That was author and consultant Annie Peng Yuen. Annie is the founder and president of AP Consulting Associates, LLC. Last week, our Talking Tuesday listener survey asked the question, does your organization have CDI on the weekends? Now, we didn't have time to discuss the results, but we do now. Here, once again, is Dr. Reamer. Erica. Well, Chuck, I was a little uh, surprised by the poll results, although I think I really didn't have an expectation of what the response was going to be. We asked, does your facility, institution, or organization have CDI on the weekends? 8% of you said yes. 2% said you are planning to. 11% of you would like to but don't have sufficient staffing. And almost half of you, 48%, have no plans for weekend CDI. 28% of you did not find this poll to be applicable to you or your organization. So I personally am ambivalent about weekend CDI. On the one hand... There are times when the provider who is eliciting the query is exclusively weekend coverage, and it may be easiest to catch them when they are working. There are also short stays where concurrent CDI would have to be done on the weekend, or you miss it and have to resort to retrospective querying. Some CDSs may want to work weekends to accommodate their life and schedule. I should think the administration would permit it. After all, the hospital is a 24-7 environment, and if your CDSs want to be 24-7, or, all right, maybe not really 24, but if they want to be 7, that should be, you know, uh, acceptable to you. However, there are many CDI professionals who really do not want to work on the weekend. If a department chooses to go to weekend coverage, they need to figure out the most palatable schedule according to their staffing. It could be one weekend every so many weeks or a month of weekends once a year. Um, I would actually make sure I let CDSs kind of swap, swap in and out of weekends with one another if that fits their lifestyles. I would look carefully at statistics. So if your department is missing 30% of your admissions and the non-CDI coders are responsible for retrospective queries and you find that you're missing massive opportunities, you may need to and want to institute weekend CDI. If your CDI team reviews 100% of cases, although some of them are retrospective because of the timing, but you are not missing opportunities, don't fix what ain't broken. If your team works well, but all the CDSs would jump ship if you force them to do weekends, don't break it. If any of you out there who do weekend coverage have a story to share with us and our listeners, please email Chuck at cbuck at medlearnmedia.com. 
We've asked our panelists to stick around for a roundtable discussion on today's Tuck In Tuesday, so gathered around our virtual roundtable, here they are. Terry Fletcher, Rhonda Tuller, Amy Feng Yang, and of course, Dr. Eric Reamer. Dr. Reamer, we've got a number of questions from one uh, very involved listener. Her name is Heather. Let's take a look at what Heather is asking you. It's very long, so I'm going to have to kind of read it out loud and see if we can um, parse it. Uh, I know we have talked a lot about CDI. I work in a SNF, and there are only two medical records employees, including myself. I have been here for four years and currently the medical records coordinator for the facility and am in charge. I want to know how or if we should incorporate CDI in our facility. The uh, listener also goes on to say she's also like a HIPAA compliance officer. So she really wants to make sure that she reads the guidelines, and she says she's called the Hermione Granger of the facility, which is a title she wears proudly. So I guess the question is, do we think that CDI in a sniff has value? And actually, I was wondering, Annie, do you have any opinion on that? In terms of starting a CDI program, I think any organization's um, or continuum of care benefits um, from uh, documentation improvement. Um, but based on this uh, question, she wears multiple hats at her sniff facility, right, Erica? Yes. So, you know, I think performing some form of data analysis of things that are being um, coded that have unspecified um, diagnosis codes, I think, would be a great starting point. I think it's, you know, when you're spread too thin and wearing multiple hats, you kind of set yourself up for failure because the priorities would be different. Um, So I think it's really important to establish that structure of what um, the initiative and mission is in terms of clinical documentation. But I personally think any institution would benefit from a documentation improvement program. And I would actually like to repeat that. I think that some of us get in our heads that the purpose of clinical documentation improvement is to find CCs and MCs and make sure that you're, you know, maximizing your reimbursement. And the reality is I really think of it as clinical documentation integrity. And the point of documentation is to make sure that we are accurately representing how sick and complex the patients are, both to ensure that we take excellent care of our patients and then to get credit for having taken excellent care of our patients. And I don't think that it matters where it is. So whether it's in your, you know, the acute uh, short-term care or if it's in SNF, you know, even the ERF, uh, which has a fascinating risk adjustment model, which is different than anything we know of, it's all about explaining how sick and complex the patient is, right? So even on the outpatient side, when you're doing HCC risk adjustment, it's still about making sure that you have your acuity and your specificity so that we, we recognize how sick the patient is and make sure that everybody um, understands it. Heather's next question was, what resources should you be looking to and what are the first steps that I would need to implement CDI in our facility? For me to answer that question, Chuck, I would really need to do some research because I don't really do much consulting. I don't do any consulting at this point in SNFs, so I don't off the top of my head know. I would imagine that we at MedLearn and, and ICD University probably have some tools, 
I think that Actus uh, HC Pro probably does, and so does Ahima, but I, I couldn't offhand give her um, any particular uh, specific resources. Terry or Annie or Rhonda, anybody else have anything that they know of offhand that would be useful for a sniff? I can tell you that uh, we continue to talk about that on Rack Monitor, and I encourage you to listen to Monitor Mondays every Monday, 10 a.m., 10.30 a.m., when we talk about skilled nursing facilities. Also, be sure to read Rack Monitor e-news because we report on that frequently. In fact, we have a story there on our homepage at rackmonitor.com on that very issue, so be sure to watch for that. Hey, uh, Erica, William Johnson um, has a has a question that he wants to ask. And take, take a look at that question, would you? Because he's talking about the clinical person should be uh, a clinical validator. I believe he's referring to the RAC statement of work that indicates that a clinical person should conduct clinical validation. The whole point of that is that the RAC is setting that up for them, but they are not mandating that institutions or organizations must use a clinician to conduct their clinical validation. So every organization needs to determine who they think is competent to do it, and it doesn't really matter what alphabet soup you have after your name if you have enough experience and knowledge and understanding of clinical um, conditions to be able to do clinical validation. You know, I just would like to point out that the reality of clinical validation is you ask a question, but the person that's actually doing the clinical validation is a clinician. So when you go and you ask a doctor, here are the indicators that suggest to me that there might not really be sepsis here, you are not validating whether it's there or not. You are asking the clinician to make that validation. And I I just think we should keep that in mind because we are not coming at doctors and saying, hey, this condition was not present. We're saying we are reading your documentation from the documentation. We can't tell that the diagnosis you've made is supported. We need you either to acknowledge that the diagnosis is not there and remove it, or we need you to bolster your documentation so that everyone reading this will recognize that the diagnosis you made is valid. Thanks, Erica, very much. That's going to be a wrap for our 336th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And Eric and I want to thank our guest today, Terry Fletcher. Terry, thanks for a great article, too, in the program. We also want to thank Rhonda Teller. Rhonda, I'm sorry I didn't have a chance to get back to you on a couple of questions. We'll follow up with you later. And Annie Fang, thanks, of course, for being on our program. And, of course, Dr. Erica Reamer. Hope you're going to join us next Tuesday for another edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, speaking on behalf of Dr. Erica Reamer and everyone here at Talk 10 Tuesday night to attend monitor. Have a great week, everyone. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.